Good morning and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. And we are delighted today to have Dr. David Nuremberg speaking to us. He's going to present uh, two case studies of uh, drug and device products with a lot of uh, information around their the approval processes and the follow-ups of, of devices and, medi and medications. Um, we know David as the Edward T. Crum Professor of Medicine and Pharmacology. He has um, also founded and has been the chief of the section of clinical pharmacology and toxicology here. He directs the second year SBM course, the Scientific Basis of Medicine course for the Geisel School of Medicine, served 17 years as the senior associate dean for medical education and is now a senior advising dean at Geisel. David went to uh, Harvard College for his bachelor's degree won a year at Oxford to study biochemistry, came back to Harvard Medical School for his degree, went to the Beth Israel Hospital in Boston for his internship and residency, left for the other coast, and uh, uh, studied his training in clinical pharmacology, doing a research in clinical year, two years, at uh, UC San Francisco, and was then, as was custom, in selecting the best and brightest, was selected to Stanford Medical Center as their chief medical resident. Often residencies of that nature were done after the, the specialty training. And uh, then we drafted him to Dartmouth Medical School, where he joined the faculty, I think, around 1981, and has ascended, as you know. Uh, David asked me to stay brief, so I will stay brief. His focus of research was originally in methotrexate and also in fat-soluble vitamins as they are attached to chemotherapeutic uh, uh, actions. Um, uh, chemo-interventional or chemo-preventive actions. I remember we worked together on several projects uh, uh, back in the uh, few decades ago. And David is a prolific author. He's written over 75 peer-reviewed papers. He's the co-author of the major textbook in clinical pharmacology and toxicology. Uh, he has been awarded the one of the annual Glazer AOA AAMC Teaching Awards, which is a very coveted award and has uh, was nominated by our institution and uh, was selected for that, and he's won many other teaching awards in our department. That's the brevity. I'll invite you, David, to come and talk to us. Uh, you will uh, enlighten us, I'm sure. Thank you. Well, thanks very much, Rich, for that very gracious introduction. And I guess to summarize it, what Rich basically said is, I've been here a long time and I'm getting old. <laughs> uh, what I would like to do today is tell you, um, and that, is, that, is that okay for everybody? Because I have some interesting photographs. I want to tell you three stories. I want to, Grand Rounds are usually about stories and what we can learn from those stories. I want to tell you the story about a very exciting drug that turned out to fail a very exciting new orthopedic device, and I know very little about orthopedics or those devices, but uh, through some circumstances, I was forced to learn about those um, through my work in toxicology and heavy metal toxicity. And then finally, the story uh, of an individual patient, because I think grand rounds always get more interesting when you think about individual patients. And I've given roughly one grand rounds here a year that I'm always excited to do for 33 years. And I've always told a story in this space. It's usually been the story about a dyad of a patient and a physician. And things, the stories that I usually tell you about are about medications or toxins, a patient who was poisoned with mercury through a lab accident or a medication that went wrong. Um, I've told you about adverse drug reactions. Sometimes we've been the first to describe them in the world at Grand Rounds, medication errors. And I, my Grand Rounds have sort of been in this bubble. But through circumstances the last couple of years, I, I wanted today to do something outside of that bubble. I wanted to look at the larger context or environment in which we all prescribe for our patients. And as you know, if we're prescribing a device or a drug, we have to pay attention to the pink part of this triangle, the drug or the device company. And of course, that is regulated to some degree by the FDA. And the company and the FDA relate to us and relate to the patient. 
And each of those areas has its own strengths and weaknesses. So the drug or the device company has its own culture, and sometimes it's a culture of safety first, and sometimes it's not. And they are run by officers, presidents and vice presidents. Ultimately, their main goal is to raise money, profit, for the stockholders, and that's their stated goal, by selling good products to patients through doctors. And they are allowed by the FDA to do direct-to-consumer advertising and detailing to MDs, but sometimes they do unethical things. That's part of this system. Sometimes they make illegal payments to doctors, and that's been highlighted in the Accountability Act that's just kicking in this year. And they have other illegal activities, and every year you hear about drug or device companies that are found to be doing illegal advertising, and they have to pay large fines um, because they violated their FDA rules. And the FDA has its own issues. They have directors that have ranged from wonderful to abysmal. Uh, they are only empowered to do what the Congress passes laws to empower them to do. And in general, the laws that empower the FDA are written by legislators with the language provided by lobbyists from the device companies, from the drug companies, and from the medical supplement companies. So often the legislation is deeply flawed. They have an understaffed workforce because Congress doesn't give them enough money. But in my experience working with the FDA, they are, in general, incredibly dedicated, hardworking, bright, and capable. And their culture is really one of service. But they have some flaws, too. For example, they use advisory groups that often contain highly biased individuals. And of course, we as physicians are not immune to these pressures. We all swear to the Hippocratic Oath to put the patient first. We have a culture of safety. But many of our brothers and sisters in medicine have really strong financial conflicts of interest, which makes you wonder about the advice that they're providing to their patients. So that's the environment that I'm going to be playing in today for this talk. And here are my goals. Uh, by the end of this session, uh, I'd love you to be somewhat more familiar with what went on with Vioxx and with this total hip replacement device, each of which came about because of an exciting new scientific hypothesis. I'd like you to understand those. I'd like you to be familiar not only with the process of testing and approval for those products, but more broadly, what is it that drugs have to go through to be tested and approved by the FDA? And how does that differ so dramatically from what devices have to go through? Again, they are regulated by the FDA. And we'll go through the clinical experience with the products, initially very exciting, then how problems developed, and then why the companies in the FDA were so incredibly slow in actually taking action to protect our patients. Finally, if there's a few minutes at the end, I had a few final thoughts about increasing accountability for this whole system. This is a summary slide that I'm not going to spend much time on. I think you all knew those. Uh, for drugs, the drug company has an exciting new compound. They test it on animals. It looks pretty good after animal testing. They go to the FDA for what's called an IND, an investigational new drug exemption, so which will give them permission to actually, for the first time, test these drugs in man. The testing, as you've heard in previous grand rounds, is called phase one, phase two, phase three. It's not important to know the differences there other than they're formalized and highly regulated and restricted. If after those phase one, two, and three testing, uh, the drug still looks promising, the FDA just takes a huge amount of data, presents it to the FDA, in the form of an NDA, a new drug application, the FDA thinks about it for months to years, finally says, OK, you can do this. Or they might require more research before they do it. Now the drug company can market it and advertise it for those approved indications. The MD writes a prescription. The drug is given to real world patients who are often very different from the kinds of patients that the drug was actually tested on. And hopefully everything goes well. But other things can happen, too. For example, maybe that new drug that was approved for treatment of hypertension actually works to lessen the risk of arrhythmias, in which case the drug company might go back to the FDA and say, we'd like to add this indication. Or sometimes things don't, don't go as well as you hope. Maybe new, serious, or even life-threatening adverse reactions happen. Hopefully, doctors will discover this. 
Doctors will often report this directly to the FDA or report it to the drug company, which then, under law, has to report serious drug reactions back to the FDA, and then the FDA may take some action based on those reports. So if I can activate this. Um, let's see if this is working. I'd like you to take out your voting devices and say, roughly speaking, for a typical drug that goes through this process, how many real patients have been given this drug typically before the FDA will make a decision whether to approve it or not? Okay, and uh, this is what um, a teacher likes to see, is all five answers were chosen. <laughs> all right, so a typical drug would be given to about 2,500. So for that quarter of you that said C, that's right. But the others aren't necessarily wrong, because sometimes, in some situations, it might only be 500 or 1,000. And sometimes, when the FDA isn't sure, it could be 5,000. But typically, it's about 2,500. And they've only gotten the drug for a few months. So they're not very many patient years of experience. And I have to click here. So let's talk about non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. This is a review slide. And it's telling us that if arachidonic acid is available to cells, there's an enzyme called lipoxygenase that may turn it into leukotrienes. But I'm more interested in, uh, right in this area, cyclooxygenase 1 and 2 that turn arachidonic acid into some intermediary prostanoids, PGG2, PGH2, which then down here at the bottom can be, through specific synthase enzymes, turned into prostacycline. I've put that in green because since it vasodilates and inhibits platelet aggregation, it's green as good as helping to prevent thrombosis. Whereas in red, I've put, or pink, thromboxane A2, by promoting vasoconstriction and platelet aggregation, it promotes thrombosis. And depending when and where the thrombosis happens, that can be either good or bad. So what does COX-1 do, cyclooxygenase-1? It produces prostanoids that really help maintain and protect renal function through vasodilatation and help to maintain and protect gastric mucosal integrity. Whereas the COX-2 enzyme is highly induced, up to 80 or 100-fold, in inflammatory states. Uh, and so you can see that there's a difference starting to occur to the scientists and the companies between the effects of COX-1 and COX-2. And in the 1990s, in a subsidiary of Merck called Merck Frost in Canada, they said, what would happen if we could develop an inhibitor that was selective for COX-2 and not COX-1. Maybe we could inhibit the inflammatory effects, but allow the good prostanoids to keep happening to protect renal function and, and maintain gastric mucosal integrity. And so three different drug companies raced to develop what we now call the COX-2 selective non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. And in this slide, you can see they were really good. Their medicinal chemists were really good at developing Biox, Bextra, and Celebrex. And you can see their generic names there that were much more potent at inhibiting COX-2 enzyme compared to the COX-1 enzyme. And this resulted in a three-year period of time between 1998 and 2001 in the FDA approving three new drugs to go to market. And you can see Celebrex was first. That's actually still available to you. Vioxx was second. And Bextra, or Valvacoxib, was third. We'll be focusing on Vioxx today. And there was a huge launch. This was a blockbuster drug almost instantly. By blockbuster drug, we mean any drug that has total annual sales of more than a billion dollars a year. And this was almost $3 billion a year. And instead of being advertised the way the drug was intended, just for use in patients at high risk for gastric or renal toxicity, it was advertised for everybody as a first-line non-steroidal. And I, I vividly remember the ads. Does anybody know who this is? 
if you're old enough to have watched her in the Olympics, Dorothy Hamill, who was a gorgeous figure skater who won the gold medal, and they featured Dorothy Hamill saying, you know, I love ice skating. Yeah, we got that. Uh, and, and I can't now because my knees are so sore, but thanks to Vioxx, I can now skate on the pond with 40 little kids and my life is great, again. Interestingly, of the $2.5 billion that they raised in revenue every year, 500 million of it was plowed back into advertising of all types. Unbelievable amount of money for their advertising budget. But within a year of being approved, red flags started to pop up. This was a study funded by Merck in which they wanted to definitively prove that patients randomized to Vioxx were less likely to have serious GI side effects than patients randomized to the leading drug of the time of that class, which was naproxen. And because they wanted to make it a clean study, they said, we're not going to take anyone who's got a life-threatening problem, no heart attacks, no strokes, nobody on aspirin to prevent heart attacks or strokes, no cancer, no angina. We just want really healthy patients. And here's what they found. This was spread across four different tables, and I've scrunched it all together in one table to make it easier to present. But here, right up here, you can see that compared to the present standard of care, naproxen, the new kid on the block, Vioxx, reduced the chance or the rate of having any confirmed adverse GI event from 45 events per 1,000 patient years to 21. They cut it roughly in half. And compared to what was going on with naproxen, the leading drug at the time, if you look at just the really serious confirmed GI events, perforation, obstruction, severe upper GI bleed, again, a reduction from 14 to 6 events per 1,000 patient years, a little bit more than a 50% reduction. Now, I'd like you to focus. There wasn't really much difference in this study down here in stroke risk. But if you look at the risk of patients developing heart attacks, which is kind of interesting because they did everything they could to keep patients with heart disease out of their group. But nevertheless, some people had heart attacks. And you can see that the, that the, the rate per 1,000 patients here of heart attack in the naproxen group is this. And the rate for having a heart attack while you were under study in the Vioxx group was this. So let me go to my next slide and clear out the voting device and, and ask you, you saw those numbers, about 1.3 in, in the group that was on naproxen and about 5.3 in the group that was on Vioxx. How would you express this in the paper? So read all four of those possible conclusions. Tell me what you think. How would you express it? mostly A and B, and let me close this to see. You, you said, compared to patients receiving naproxen, patients receiving Vioxx had about a fourfold risk of having an MI. That's probably what I would do. That's the relative risk. Or B is also correct. That's the absolute risk. Compared to the current standard of care, the new drug does this. So I thought I'd show you what they wrote in their paper. Uh-oh. I know that laughter. Uh, they wrote, the incidence of MI was lower among patients in the naproxen group than among those in rofecoxib group. Results are consistent with the theory that naproxen has a coronary protective effect. <laughs> and I read that and I said, really? This drug has been on the market for 10 years and has never been shown to be protective. Wouldn't this also be consistent with the theory that Vioxx is four times, if you're on taking Vioxx, you're four times more likely to have a heart attack than if you're taking naproxen. Again, showing how numbers can be deliberately manipulated and misrepresented in a published study. Shortly after that, a meta-analysis came out uh, 
on all of the studies thus far about Vioxx, and it included reanalysis of the Viger data that I just showed you, and they concluded that if you looked at the subset of patients that were included accidentally who should have been on aspirin because they had risk factors for, myocard for coronary artery disease, the, risk, the relative risk was, uh, was about five. So this is a really strong effect that they misrepresented in their paper. So what did the FDA do about it? Virtually nothing. Here's what the FDA did at that point. They were warned Merck about making false and misleading promotional activities. Please cut it out. They warned about potential for cardiovascular risk, but they did not require any new warning in the labeling of the drug and they said they weren't absolutely convinced that the findings were real. In 2004, another interesting study came out. This was a study to look at the ability of Vioxx to maybe lessen the recurrence rate of adenomatous polyps uh, because there was some early indications that inhibiting COX-2 might have that effect. Notice after about 36 months, the trial was stopped because the cumulative incidence of confirmed thrombotic events, namely stroke and MI, was more than twice as large in the study group randomized to Vioxx than in the group randomized to placebo. And this group here, the Safety and Data Monitoring Committee said, stop trial. It's no longer ethical to continue this trial because you're causing a lot of strokes and heart attacks. So here's another chance for you to vote. Between 2000 and 2001, when the increased risk of developing heart attacks while Vioxx was, reported, was first reported, and 2004, finally when the drug was voluntarily withdrawn from sale in the United States, um, which of the following activities did Merck do? Okay, we have 30. Um, so most of you said B, C, D, or E. So let's go C. What they never did, even though they were aware of this risk, is they never funded or launched post-marketing approval, a new trial to actually examine this possible problem in detail. But they did continue to aggressively advertise the drug as a first-line drug. They did instruct their sales reps to avoid discussing potential cardiovascular risks of heart attack. And if physicians raised it as a concern to deliberately change the subject, that was in the instructions to the marketing uh, pharmaceutical reps. And they did change the cause of death on some of the case reports that came in from probable heart attack to unknown, and then reported that to the FDA. I've never read an editorial like this, but uh, in late 2004 in the New England Journal, in a perspective piece written by Eric Tuppel, who's a cardiologist who was then at the Cleveland Clinic, he said that this, the withdrawal of Vioxx, represents the largest prescription drug withdrawal in history. But had the many warning signs along the way been heeded, such a debacle could have been prevented. And read this sentence. Neither of the two major forces in this five-year affair, neither Merck nor the FDA, fulfilled its responsibilities of protecting the public. I have never read an editorial approved for publication in New England Journal that was this damning of a company and a government agency. That's pretty harsh language. A meta-analysis came out a few months later that said as early, and I'm going to get my point here, as early as the end of 2000, when there had been about 21,000 patients enrolled in various trials, it was absolutely clear, right, down here and here, beyond any reasonable doubt, with less than a 1% chance that you were making a type 1 error, it was absolutely clear that Vioxx was more dangerous when compared to placebo or when compared to naproxen. And had the company been looking at those data and had the FDA been looking at those data, the drug should have been withdrawn in 2000. 
Why? Why, if you just inhibit COX-2, is it more dangerous than if you inhibit COX-1 and COX-2? And it's because the company forgot this. This was known by 1998 that the endothelium mostly has COX-2. The endothelium is responsible for producing prostacyclin. And if you inhibit only COX-2, you're preventing the endothelium from elaborating prostacyclin, and you're not inhibiting platelets from producing thromboxane. That was known in 1998. There were scientists within Merck who warned the clinical side of Merck to watch out for heart attacks and strokes, and it was ignored by the clinical side of Merck. <coughs> what happened to Merck? They bombed out. On the day of the announcement of this recall, their stock dropped 25% in a single day, $28 billion of loss to the stockholders. On November 1st, the Wall Street Journal reported that Merck had known about this risk for years and had done nothing about it. In the Wall Street Journal, the stock fell another 10%. And there were estimates that Merck would end up losing more than $10 billion by loss of sales, and also everyone said, wow, they're going to get sued. They're probably going to have to pay out at least $5 billion to pay lawsuits, which in fact turned out to be true. On November 19th of 2004, in the Valley News, one of the high-ranking administrators from the FDA testified, and this is scary, quote, the FDA as currently configured is incapable of protecting Americans against another Vioxx. We have no systems in place that are reliable for catching problems even this big as they develop once drugs have been approved for sale. For someone within the FDA to say that publicly is amazing because you know what happened to that person the next day, right? That's really gutsy. So here we have another vote here. The FDA set up an advisory panel to advise the FDA, what should we do with these three COX-2-specific inhibitors? What do you think the advisory panel recommended in February of 2005? So we're open for voting here. Okay, so the majority of you said B. Let's jump out here and see what B was. B was they found that all three drugs increased the risk of causing heart attacks and recommended that these drugs should carry black box warning. So you guys are really good. That is what they recommended. But I want to tell you the story behind that recommendation because it's even more interesting. I can't get this going here. That's what the big group recommended. But if you tossed out the votes of the 10 members on the advisory panel who were paid consultants of the three companies that made the three drugs, the vote would have been to ban all three of them. Raising the question, should you have paid consultants of drug companies serving on FDA advisory panels? The vote would have been very different. So I'm going to wrap up my discussion of Vioxx now that we're all really excited about COX-2 inhibitors. Um, it's good to investigate new hypotheses. It's good to design new drugs. And sometimes new drugs turn out to be incredibly useful. And we ought to promote that work within big pharma, within the pharmaceutical industry. It turns out the FDA has an extremely rigorous process for reviewing drugs before it approves them. But as you've seen, in phase one, phase two, and phase three testing, if it only covers 2,500 patients, they will never detect a small difference in heart attack rate, or bleeding rate, or renal failure rate, or cancer rate, because the number of patients that they've studied is so low, which means those things will pop up once the drug is being used by millions of people, but only if you look for it and report it. We've also raised questions and doubts about the FDA advisory panels and noted that the FDA really needs to improve its process for monitoring drug safety after the drug has been approved and more widely used. So a few weeks ago, I went to the National Clinical Pharmacology meeting and spoke to a very good friend of mine 
going back more than 35 years, who's now very high up in the FDA. He allowed me to use his name, Daryl Bernathy, who's very high up in the Center for Drug Evaluation Research at the FDA. And he says, actually, the FDA has taken this pretty seriously. And they've dramatically expanded a new group within the FDA called the Drug Surveillance and Epidemiology Program, which as soon as there are red flag signals that something is not going well with a drug, they will try to get all of the data they can through every database that's available to them to see if the Sentinel event actually represents a serious problem. So in this area, at least, it seems like the FDA is doing much better than it was just a few years ago. Now, uh, this is my last uh, question for you on this part. Um, I'm going to talk for a minute about the FDA's MedWatch program. And I would just like you to click your relationship to MedWatch at this time. OK, so 29% of you have never heard of it. 53% have heard of it, but have never submitted a report. And then the, the remaining 15 or 20% have. This is really important. And I, I want to just show this to you. This is what the MedWatch forms looks like. And if you suspect that you've got a patient who's had a serious or life-threatening adverse effect from a drug or a device or an herbal product or a nutritional supplement, you can get this form online. Fill it out. It takes less than 10 minutes. You don't have to be sure. You're just telling them, I've seen this, and I think maybe the drug is defective, or maybe the device is defective. Here's where you can get it. And you all see that little text right up at the top? No, I couldn't either, so I made it bigger. <laughs> so it's uh, fda.gov medwatch. And do you know what their motto is at, at MedWatch? They really want you to do this. We are the federal government, and we are here to help. <laughs> and in my experience, and I've talked to the office on numerous occasions, they really have a passion for this. They really want you to let them know, uh, not you know, every time you give morphine and someone gets a little nausea, but every time there is a serious, life-threatening, or fatal event that you think might be causally related to a device or a drug or a nutritional supplement. Please go there. Those are the sentinel events that the FDA will then react to. OK, I'm going to take a breath here. Are you ready to move on to a device story? So I'm going to tell you a story about a total hip replacement device. How many in the audience have undergone total hip replacement surgery? Uh, only two of you. And that's good. How many of you have ever worked with a patient who has considered having a total hip replacement surgery procedure or has done so. Okay, So that's the group I'm talking to. Because those that have gone through it already know a lot of what I'm about to say. But those of us who advise patients, we're, we're the medical doctors, but they come to us saying, you know, thinking about this really bad osteoarthritis in my hip, and my orthopedist suggests I do this. What do you think, doc? This next part is for you. So let's talk about the hips. And here I've just pulled some things off the, off of the um, internet. And then let's see if I can get a better pointer here. So we're talking about the natural hip here that has nice, smooth cartilage. We're going to be talking about the, replacing the femoral head or ball, the acetabular cup in its natural state. Here you can see an acetabular cup or shell and a liner, usually polyethylene, and a very hard ball, usually metal, and a femoral stem. So that's the nomenclature for this. And here I point out something that's called the bearing surface. When you have the acetabular cup and you have the femoral ball, that's where the rubber meets the road. That's the bearing surface, and there's a variety of different choices that the patient can make after discussing it with the orthopedic surgeon. So here's another chance to vote before we get into this in more detail. What bearing surface would you guess would be the most likely to hold up intact without needing replacement or fussing around or causing problems over 15 years in a total hip replacement? What do you think is most likely to give you at least 15 years, hopefully 20 years? 
PE is, is polyethylene plastic. And that's the current standard of care is to have this polyethylene liner put in between. Okay. And you said you think the one that's most likely to, to give you a good 15 or 20 year run with this uh, replacement is probably, you said B, C, or D. Um, metal ceramic composite head rubbing up against polyethylene or a metal head rubbing up against polyethylene or a few of you said metal against metal. And this is really important information that a patient needs to make a good decision and it's not available through any of the companies. It's very frustrating. Now, let's talk about medical devices. The FDA defines a device as a medical machine, contrivance implant, intra vitro, in vitro reagent, or other products or articles, including components thereof, intended to affect the structure of any function of the body of man or uh, man, they don't even talk about women, or other animals, and does not achieve any of its primary intended purposes through chemical action. That would be a drug. They're talking about devices. And they divide devices, as you can see here, into the real, sorry, the real simple ones, uh, ACE bandages, exam gloves, surgical instruments, or the ones that have more risk. You don't want a powered wheelchair to suddenly flip over or accelerate in an uncontrolled way, um, you know, like a Toyota. Um, or, or surgical drapes that aren't sterile. And then class three devices are really high risk because we're going to stick them in you. And if they malfunction, we have to pull them back out. So implantable pacemakers, HIV tests, joint or bone implants, where making a mistake really has big consequences. And this is the device approval process. And I just want to show you that I wasn't fully aware of this before I started reading about it, but there's two ways you can get a device approved. The company might say to the FDA, this is a brand new device. There's nothing out there that's anything like it. In which case, the FDA says you have to test it in patients before we will approve it. And then once we approve it, then you can sell it, advertise it, and market it. Or the company making the device might say, we have a new device, but it's substantially equivalent. It's very similar to other devices. This is a new total hip device, but it's like the last 10 models of total hips that we've made. This is a new implantable defibrillator, but it's pretty much like the five prior implantable defibrillators, in which case the FDA says, well, if it's really substantially equivalent, you don't have to test it on anybody. And you can submit a form 510K that says, we're not going to test it on anybody because it's substantially equivalent. And then we'll clear it for sale, and then you can sell it. So two different pathways. So here's my next question for you. For something as important as a total hip replacement device, perhaps made by Stryker, a big company, or Dupuy, the national leader in hip replacement devices, approximately what percentage of such new devices, total hip devices, are tested and evaluated in patients prior to their approval or clearance by the FDA? Just to the nearest 25%. Wow, a lot of fast votes there. Um, most of you thought it was 25 or 50%. Some of you said 100%, so this result might surprise you. Really? Really? You're going to put this in someone and hope that it stays there for 15 or 20 years, and less than 1% of the time, it's going to be tested on a single human patient? <clears throat> really? That's amazing. Because the companies say, it's substantially like the one that we made three years ago, so we don't need to test it. So here's the story on this new device, ASRXL. The company said the biggest problem with total hip devices is that the plastic polyethylene liner or insert is soft plastic and it tends to wear out before the other parts. And then you get only these little plastic particles 
getting into your joint space and they are inflammatory and disruptive. And once that liner tears and breaks down, the surgeon has to go in, pull, pull that liner out and replace it. But maybe now that we're so good at machining metal and we can make metal so smooth, maybe we can do away with the plastic liner and have a metal ball and a metal acetabular cup, metal on metal, lubricated by the body's own synovial fluid, and we can make the ball bigger, which should give you greater range of motion, less likelihood of dislocation, and it should last 20 or 25 years instead of 15 years. Because we don't have to worry about that plastic liner. So I just wanted to illustrate what this would mean. This is not exactly the, the ASR, but it's one that's almost identical to it. Can you all see that white plastic right there? Okay, that is the plastic polyethylene liner. Whereas here, you can see it's metal on metal. We have metal, polyethylene, metal. But here, look at that huge metal ball, shiny, smooth, interfacing directly with the inside polished metal surface of the acetabular cup. And I just wanted to show you the difference in diameter. This red arrow is approximately the diameter at its widest point uh, of that femoral head. And it's a little hard to compare those two because they're so far apart, so I've moved them. It's way bigger. And this is why the device was called the ASR, Articular Surface Replacement System. XL, it's extra large. And the company said to the orthopedist, it should last a lot longer, it should give you better range of motion, it should have less dislocations, and we strongly recommend it for your younger active patients because it won't wear out for a long time. It was approved for sale in Europe in 2003, and it cleared the FDA, again, it was never tested in humans, in 2005, and we went through all of that. Now, they didn't test it in humans, but they, there are companies, and I, I got this off of a website. It's a little hard to see because it's dark, but there are companies that specialize in testing in the lab total hips or total knees. Here is fake synovial fluid. It's basically like thin motor oil. Dan, is that like synovial fluid, motor oil? Uh, a little bit. A little bit, okay. <laughs> I mean, I, I believe everything Dan tells me, so okay. Can you see right here a femoral head? Do you see that round, shiny thing? And up here is a cuff. And they make the machine rotate this millions of times per month, sort of like when somebody walks with force applied, sort of like carrying your own weight. And then after a month, the company will take it out and measure how much thinning has occurred in the metal head or the polyethylene liner. But it's not exactly like testing it in a patient. So here's what happened with their clinical experience. It was heavily marketed to orthopedic surgeons in the United States. In fact, I, I wasn't aware of this. Dupuis was among four device makers who settled with the US government in 2007 over an investigation into kickbacks being paid to doctors in order to avoid prosecution. Dupuis paid $85 million in fines. Anybody recognize this? <laughs> US attorney at the time, Chris Christie, said, prior to our investigation, many orthopedic surgeons in this country made decisions predicated on how much money they could make choosing which device to implant by going to the highest bidder. I think I'll implant a striker one, because they'll give me $1,000, but the Dupuis will only give me $500. Would you want to go and have that be the way a decision is made as to which hip is implanted? Now, I wouldn't trust him about you know lane closures on the George Washington Bridge, <laughs> but he seemed to be doing his job here. <laughs> By 2007, a British surgeon began seeing patients complaining of groin pain in or near their new total hip. Dupuis' response is that your surgical technique was at fault. You didn't align it properly. The Australian Registry for Total Hip Replacements reported in 2008 that they were seeing a lot of failures 
of implanted ASR Excel systems way higher than any other total hit. And between 2007 and 2009, the Australian Joint Registry warned Dupuis 17 times that they were seeing a lot of failures of their hip. And in 2008, Dr. Langton in England, a colleague of Dr. Nargol, noted that these patients were having really high chromium and cobalt levels in the patients, which he felt was due to the constant grinding of metal on metal. And cobalt and chromium are both heavy metals that, at least in animal studies, carry some unknown risk of carcinogenesis. So he was worried about this. Fortunately, I had. From 2008, a brochure that Dupuis printed and gave to doctors and to patients. And you know what? Around um, election time for presidents, they, they always on TV do these fact checks. Was the candidate telling the truth? Well, I did a fact check on every single claim <laughs> in the brochure for the Excel. And the only one that was true was that this hip has extra large diameter metal on metal bearings with exact tolerances. Every other statement they made was either deliberately misleading, had no supporting data, or was false. Every single one. And you can see it here. Meanwhile, the problems continued. Uh, in the US, between 2008 and 2010, more than 300 complaints about this device were filed voluntarily with the FDA. In 2009, Dupuis stopped selling it in Australia, claiming that, well, demand was down. But there are no safety issues that we know of. In early 2010, Dupuis announced worldwide, um, we're not going to make these anymore. We're going to phase them out. But it's perfectly safe, and we're going to leave the ones that are still there on the market. And then in 2010, in August, after five years of complaints about the product, Dupuis announced, we were shocked. We were shocked to find new unpublished data just a few months ago from England and Wales revealing the need for joint revision at five years, more than double what was expected. We were shocked, but we're glad we made all of that money the last five years. Does that remind you of a movie? No? Well, it reminded me of a movie. I'm shocked, shocked to find that gambling is going on in here. Now give me my winnings. <laughs> what movie is that? <laughs> right. It sounded just like Casablanca to me. <clears throat> so Dupuis said that previous post-marketing surveillance data from around the world had shown their product to be safe. The Australian Joint Registry said, what are you talking about? We've been telling you for the last three years it's completely untrue that Dupuis didn't have any reason to withdraw it, because we've been telling them that since 2007. And if you operate on this pa these patients, what do you find? Does that look like a nice surgical feel? What is that brownish gray cruddy stuff as you're going in to dissect down to the hip. It's, it's chromium dust, cobalt dust, and necrotic tissue. What kind of tissue? Well, synovium is totally necrotized. And it can extend to the bone and the muscle and the surrounding nerves, such that in some patients who have left it in too long, you can't even put a replacement hip in there because there's nothing to attach it to. And in fact, that led to a new word that I had never heard of. But this is a pathology report from Dartmouth-Hitchcock and the patient I'll present to you in a moment, saying we found a lot of this brown, gray, friable, dead stuff. It's synovium with, look at these words, chronic lymphoplasmacytic inflammation, fibrin decibition, surrounding necrosis consistent with ALVAL, never heard of this, a septic lymphocyte-dominated vasculitis-associated lesion. The thought is that these heavy metals may have been kicking off an immune-mediated inflammatory response, or the heavy metals may have been directly necrotizing to the tissue. But either way, the tissue died. So here is the patient I want to present to you, a previously healthy 58-year-old woman in good health, but she got bad genes from her parents. They had total hips done in their 70s, but she had bad osteoarthritis in her late 50s. And in um, March of 2008, had her right hip replaced with what was recommended to her as this larger metal-on-metal -metal device that would last longer, 
and give her better range of motion and prevent the need for a resurgery for hopefully 15 or 20 years. And at that time, I assume, because she had no cobalt or chromium in her, that her chromium and cobalt levels were normal. And I put up here in black parentheses, that's the normal level that you and I have, less than about 0.9 nanograms per mil. And her other hip was causing her a lot of problems. And 13 months later, she had the other hip done. But about two years after the first was done, she started having problems in the right hip. It was causing more pain. She could no longer sleep on that side at night, just like before she had the surgery. Range of motion was going down. And we decided in that patient to check her <laughs> blood levels. And they were very, very high, 17 to 34 times the upper limit of normal. But it wasn't clear that it was the hip problem. She had also had some back issues. And, and the, where the pain was, it wasn't classically hip or classically back. So it was decided that um, radiology would do a right hip aspirate and inject a local anesthetic, which instantly relieved the pain, which told us that it was inflammatory pain from within the hip joint. And I suggested, while you're in there, let's send, of it to, send some of that joint fluid to Mayo to see if there's high levels of metal. And Mayo said, man, we can barely measure it. <laughs> we had to dilute this so many times, we almost lost track of what it was. It was black, dirty motor oil inconsistency from all of those metal particles. And the next month, she had her right hip replaced. And then a few months later, had the left hip replaced. And it took another two years for the debridement, taking out all of the necrotic synovium to get those levels back to normal. And this is just a study shown that if you have one or two total hips done, your metal levels will go up significantly. But in this patient, they were really high even compared to that. So I'm going to skip the part about the lawsuits. Um, and I had some final thoughts about when big companies do bad things. Because we're not only hearing about Vioxx and Dupuis and the total hip, but in the last two weeks, you're very aware that General Motors has had problems for 10 years that they've known about, car crashes that are hurting people or killing 13 people. In GM's case, it's a defective ignition switch that turns off on its own. Toyota's had similar problems, big corporation. Their problems are the accelerator pedal gets stuck and you have an uncontrolled high-speed crash, hurting people and killing people. So those decisions not to report to the regulators, to lie about the data, to lie about the frequency, to keep selling the product, not to fix the products, are common to GM, Toyota, Merck, and Dupuis. But those decisions aren't made by companies. Those decisions are made by people. And what's it called in legal terminology when people, knowing that a product is causing harm to people, refuse to acknowledge it or fix it? The, the correct word for that is criminal negligence of the people. It's defined legally as the failure to use reasonable care to avoid consequences that threaten or harm the safety of the public and that are the foreseeable outcome of acting in a manner. If you have an emission switch that, doesn't, that turns off unexpectedly, you lose power steering, and the airbags won't deploy and people die, you knew about that for 10 years. That's called criminal negligence if people are hurt. But what's it called if people die? from their total hip surgery, redo, or die from an MI from Vioxx, or die from a car crash in a Toyota or a GM car. Anybody know that legal term? Negligent homicide. Negligent homicide or involuntary manslaughter. They didn't mean to kill the people, but their grossly negligent actions led to the death. And, and I guess I've been radicalized by all of this, and I feel that this behavior of large multi-billion dollar companies will not stop until the vice president for product development, the vice president for safety, the vice president for advertising, and the president of the company are tried in criminal court 
because they knew or they should have known that their products were defective and they did nothing to stop it. So my hope this morning is I've been a little bit provocative in telling you some things maybe you didn't know about how drugs get approved, how devices get approved, some thoughts that I've had over the years. And then I wanted to end by saying, why have I been a little radicalized by this? The patient that I presented is my wife, who had to have four total hips done in less than three years, not knowing any of this information because it wasn't publicly available, who's been incredibly brave through all of this. And I have her permission to present her data. And she wanted me to let you know that there was a network of mostly women out there who didn't know what to do as these prob problems were developing and were talking among themselves to try to figure it out because they couldn't get the information in a straight fashion from their physicians. We need to do better. And for us to take care of our patients, and all of you said you have total hip patients, and all of you are prescribing non-steroidals, for us to do our job, I hope you will join me in trying to hold the companies responsible for their negligent behavior. So thanks this morning for the chance to talk to you about this. David, in the popular television series Law and Order, these guys are frequently gotten. What about in the, the process that you're describing, the network of people who've been affected by this? What are the, what are the actions that can be taken at the level of Congress or the level of oversight? Yeah. Of, of regulatory agencies. Where does this go? I mean, I'm not a legal expert. I can tell you that all of the efforts thus far have gone into civil suits for disability, pain, and suffering, where the company stockholders have will authorize $4 billion to go to the victims. There has been no criminal action, because I think the prosecutors are being pussies. We need to go after these people. And, and the public has to press them to do that. Dr. Nuremberg, you showed a very interesting slide where the vast majority of things tested there are already existing devices or drugs. Yeah. Isn't there some method or way to push the FDA to have a component of innovation? Because that doesn't that clearly eliminate any concept of an innovation of what you're now going to put out, either a medication that's very similar to one that exists or a yeah. device that's very similar yeah. to one that exists? Well, I don't want to sound too cynical, but I'll make the following statement. The FDA is only authorized to do certain things according to the legislation that comes out of Congress. And three of the biggest lobbies in Washington, besides the gun lobby, uh, are the tobacco lobby that severely restricted the legislation that authorizes the FDA to deal with cigarettes. The, dr the uh, drug lobby, the pharmaceutical lobby, and the nutritional supplement lobby, which is why the FDA authorizing legislation is fairly weak in all three of those areas. What is it about Celebrex that allows advertisement to continue? Uh, what it is about Celebrex is you noticed it was the least COX-2 selective of the three, but still more COX-2 selective than naproxen. And the FDA, in my opinion, wimped out because of that advisory committee and required only a black box warning. The other two drugs voluntarily withdrew their product to limit their financial liability. Celebrex made a calculated financial decision that they would make enough selling the drug to cover any settlements that they might have to make for people that suffered heart attacks. So they made a calculated financial decision. Do we know any more about their post-marketing data that's been accumulated since that? No. No. There's still a lot of people walking around with these metal and metal dips. Is there any legal requirement for them to get educated about the findings or? No. There's no legal requirement for them to get educated. And frankly, they're in a really tough position. Because what do you do? And we, I've seen a number of women that have come to me because I, I also do toxicology of heavy metals and chelation if necessary. Um, 
What do you do if you say, you know, I had this total hip put in and it's this model three years ago, and it doesn't hurt, but my metal levels are really high, and I'm worried it's rotting away my tissue, but it doesn't hurt yet. How do you advise that person? And it's usually a woman, I don't know why. Maybe because these devices were mostly inserted in women. That's, a, that's an unanswerable question. Very, very tough for the patient. Well, David, thank you for presenting such an interesting topic.